Hello, welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua. Today's episode will be our final conclusion of season one. This episode will kind of connect the dots between government, money, and education and the systems we live under, as well as talk a little bit about the power behind the scenes, in a sense, and how and why these systems got the way they are today, and look at this from a more macro perspective. So that's the goal for today, and this will officially be the end of season one. So let's just start out by recognizing that governments, monetary systems, and education systems are interconnected today in a way that makes it seem like it could never be otherwise. People seem to have this idea that without the state, societal order would collapse into chaos and violence and destruction, that the state is this necessary evil, in a sense, that has to be there, regardless of you know some of the evils that it may be associated with and it may commit itself. The other idea is that without government controlling the money supply and the monetary system and banking regulations, our modern economy would collapse, that the big banks and big corporations would take over, they'd be running things, we would have runaway inflation, the dollar would be worthless, all these types of things are things that people generally think of when they think of a monetary system. People also will frequently have the mentality that without the state providing general education to kids, then lazy and poor parents wouldn't get their kids educated, and again, society would collapse. We need the state to be involved in this. So when you combine all these ideas, it's the overall concept that we need the state, and we need the state to be involved in government, money, and education. Not only involved, but overall in control. We like the idea of having some liberty and some freedom and some competition there, but Overall, most people feel like the government, the modern government system, is the one that should be in control of all these things. Now, in the previous episode, I talked about how that's not necessarily true if you look at reality and look at historic examples that these things are not necessarily things that need to be completely controlled by a centralized government. But to go a little further with that, I would actually like to argue that the systems we have today, at least in the form that we have them today, are actually a total sham. That government money and education, the way they're set up now, are a complete fraud. So to begin with, let's look at government. I would agree, and you probably would too, that governance and organization is necessary for a civilized society. We could also probably agree that governments aren't intrinsically evil or intrinsically a force for bad and corruption and conspiracy, that this isn't just something intrinsic to the nature of a government. However, I would argue, and I think that history and reality back me up on this, that the modern state, however, is structured in such a way that it is inherently corrupt, immoral, and inefficient. If you have listened to the series Against Government that I did um, maybe one or two series ago, then you have heard all my arguments for that, and I clearly lay it out in a very logical way that the incentive structure is such that a government 
department or a government organization is going to be inefficient. It is likely going to be corrupt. It's likely going to be ineffective. And that's not even to go into the fact that it's going to be immoral. And that's just ingrained in the structure of our modern governmental systems in modern nation states. That, again, is not necessarily intrinsic in any government. Theoretically, you could have very good governments that are centralized, but are still very efficient and effective and moral. It's possible. But reality shows us that that's not what we have today. Our current system is much closer to a fraud or a sham that promises these things, things like safety and freedom and liberty. But when you look at what they actually deliver and how these systems that we live under today are actually structured, what their incentive models are, that's not what they provide. The actual result is something that is contrary to what we would expect, what we want, and what they say the goals are. The same is true of the monetary system that we live under today, the fiat money system that pretty much every country around the world has in place. Money has been hard money for nearly the entirety of history. Gold is the most common example for a hard money, but it could be just about anything. And when you have hard money as the basis for your monetary system, this regulates the use of money It regulates the power of those in charge, and it promotes an efficient use of resources through scarcity and competition. This is something just inherent in a hard money system. You can't just print extra money. You can't just create it out of nowhere. You can't just dictate how much it is worth. That's not the way hard money works. And so that acts as a check and a balance against overreaching power. However, our current modern fiat monetary system does not provide these things. I would argue that it is a sham. It is a fraud. It's an illusion that looks like it has value and it looks like it's necessary when in fact it's something for nothing is the idea that it's based on. Not only is it unnecessary, but it's actually detrimental to the goals of freedom, morality, and prosperity. A fiat monetary system encourages governments to increase their debt and increase inflation, not to mention the corrupt incentive models that come up through things like government contracts that are paid for by this fiat money that they create out of nothing and the subsequent issues that arise after that through inflation and more power to the corporations that are tied to government and more power to the people that handle the regulation that dictate where the money goes when it is created by the government or the central bank and so on and so forth. As far as education is concerned, when we look through the entirety of recorded history, it is very difficult to find a time when kids in mass received no education whatsoever. We can easily find times when kids did not receive the type of education that kids get today, or that kids were receiving an education in a way that we wouldn't really agree with, but it is very rare to find a society that has kids in mass not being educated at all. Until modern times, kids have always learned what they need to know to take care of themselves and their future families. Now, this didn't necessarily mean that they learned how to read and write and do math and give speeches and manage a business. That's not necessarily the case. 
the education they received may have been in something like farming or being a blacksmith or a homesteader, or it could have been an entrepreneur. It isn't until modern times that the state has taken over and kids are growing up in extended adolescence without the skills, knowledge, and drive to take care of themselves in mass. Yes, most children can read. Yes, most children can write. Yes, most children are literate in many ways. But I think that most of us would agree that most children are not prepared to take care of themselves and to run their own households and their own lives and their own families. They're not as prepared to do these things as they once were. These are not things that kids are getting educated in to the degree that we probably would all think they should be. This is why I would argue that the modern education system is also a sham. It's also a fraud. It's indoctrination. It's wasted time. It's disguised as a necessary requirement to succeed. But in reality, when you look at what it produces, it does not produce what we need to succeed in life. It doesn't teach us things like personal finance and entrepreneurship and self-sufficiency and all these types of things that would be very beneficial for us to know. There is a legitimate argument that would say that the modern education system teaches us how to be a good worker, a good employee in a modern corporation. And through that, we get a paycheck that allows us to pay to take care of ourselves and that that is what the education system is training us for. And I wouldn't disagree. I would fully agree with that statement. I would just disagree that that's actually education. That's just some sort of training that you could probably get in a matter of a year or two. You could do that in probably middle school or high school at the latest and teach someone how to follow orders, respect authority, follow directions, um, all the different things that people need to do when they're working for a modern corporation, usually in a fairly repetitive job with a small amount of critical thinking required where you do a little bit of analysis. A lot of it is going to be done through computer programs and algorithms, so you don't really have to do a whole lot. You need some low-level management skills. These types of things are not very difficult to teach people. It does not take 12 years or 16 years or even more to teach someone to be able to work in a modern corporation. It's not that difficult. I would argue that a true education not only prepares someone to work in a corporation, it also prepares someone to run a corporation or a small business themselves if they so desire or are put in that situation. It teaches them how to be in charge of a team of people and work within a team to get projects done. It teaches them how to be a part of society and a community as a whole. It teaches people how to take care of themselves, how to deal with things like home maintenance and car maintenance and budgeting and investing and personal finance. And a true, complete education should teach people how the systems in our society work. This podcast should not be necessary. We should all know these things just because we have been through so many years of school. We should know about monetary systems and economics and political theory. We should know about philosophy. We should know about different learning methods and techniques. We should know about all these things. These are the types of things that we should know if we have been given a full education, not to mention the exposure to things like art and the classic books and classic philosophy and history 
in a full sense, not the edited and censored and disconnected version that we get in today's schools. There is so much that's missing in a modern education that I would argue the current education system is a fraud. It's a sham. It's not actually providing what I am describing as a real education, although it may provide enough for someone to get a job and earn a living. Yes. So we could argue about whether that is true education or not, but... If you follow my definition of education, at least someone who has a full understanding of these types of things and at least some level of exposure to all of these subjects, then the modern system is not doing that. Now, like everything I am talking about in this episode and in the previous episode, you will have to go back and listen to other episodes and other series in season one to get more details and a more extensive layout of the types of things that I am saying. I'm making blanket statements in these episodes because it's an overview. It's not the detailed explanation. If you want that, then go back and listen to season one. Hopefully, all of you have listened to season one in its entirety, but I do recognize the reality that most people probably have not. You usually skip around. At least that's what I often do. If a podcast has many episodes, then I will go back and just download and listen to the ones that sound interesting to me. But just so you know, season one is intended to be listened to all the way through chronologically so that you get all the different pieces and the previous episode in this episode will kind of help to do a review of some of the concepts and tie some things together before we go into season two and kind of change our focus a little bit. So now that I've laid out why I believe most of our modern systems are a fraud and a sham, a logical question that you should ask would be how did we get here? How did it get like this? Why are these systems the way they are? And often, if we look back through how they were created, how these systems came about and how they evolved, often this happened through corruption and conspiracy. If you look at the history of these things, you have the influence of people like the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers. And these power players did not just get involved in one aspect. If you look at the Rockefeller dynasty, for example, there was heavy involvement with them to start the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve system, basically the monetary system that the United States of America still uses to this day. There was heavy Rockefeller influence to bring the Prussian education model to the American states and to steer the way that the education system was developed. The education department was actually started as an offshoot of the Rockefeller Foundation. There have been multiple Rockefellers directly involved in government as far as being politicians and having government jobs, as well as associates of the Rockefellers and different entities that were under their umbrella that have direct government involvement. So we can see just through this one example that you have influence with government and with money and with education in a way that was very influential for how these systems developed to the point that they are today. And that's just one example. If you remember back to the episode on Cecil Rhodes and the Society of the Elect, you have a lot of influence there that still exists to this day in the form of the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission and lots of other 
other entities that spawned out of those ideologies and from those societies. And as you look back through history, when you're looking at these systems of government money and education, you see this influence of everything from secret societies to power family dynasties to off-the-books government departments, all kinds of things. There are groups with power and wealth that use this power and wealth to create more power and wealth. That's what they do. And in doing so, they consolidate power and wealth. And when you have this, you end up with what we have today. I would argue that we live in an oligarchy that's masked as a democracy that was intended to be a republic. So it's kind of screwed up. The real power lies with those who pull the strings and who orchestrate pieces behind the scenes. These are the types of people that run the oligarchy that is the ruling class of modern society. I want to bring back up an example that I've gone over previously. I've talked about it in the series on corruption and conspiracy, but I want to go over it again and give some quotations and some excerpts from the reports and investigations because they do directly apply to what I'm talking about right now. Now, all of this that I'm going to be talking about starts back in 1910, And I'll start off with that date because that's when Andrew Carnegie created a $10 million endowment. And when he did this, he selected 28 trustees and they had their first meeting. When they had this meeting, the question was raised, quote, is there any way known to man more effective than war to alter the lives of an entire people? End quote. So they discussed this, they talked it over, they thought it over, and they came to the conclusion that there was no better way to steer a society than war. Now, you have a bit of a contradiction that comes up next, because Carnegie then instructed the trustees to use the fund to, quote, hasten the abolition of international war, the foulest blot upon our civilization, end quote. And then he gave his trustees, quote, the widest discretion as to the measures and policy they shall from time to time adopt, end quote. And the endowment was known as the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And this new endowment asked themselves this contradictory question, quote, so how do we involve the United States in a war? We must control the State Department. We must take over and control the diplomatic machinery of this country. End quote. And this was just before the Council on Foreign Relations was established, and I've talked about that as well. These quotes all come from the Carnegie Foundation documented records, and also in these documents were the names and positions of some of the people that were involved, some of these trustees. They were people such as the Harvard University president, the philanthropist Robert Brookings, the former ambassador to Great Britain, the former Secretary of State, a former president of MIT, and then president of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, Henry Pritchett, and Carnegie Institution President Robert Woodward. So you can see by looking at these names and positions that these were very influential people, a lot of them associated with the education system. What a shock. 
So shortly after these meetings and these goals were decided, the U.S. did get involved in World War I. And I've talked about some of the questionable ways that we got involved with that war with Woodrow Wilson, the connections to the Society of the Elect, the Lusitania, all that kind of stuff. There is a lot there, and I won't get back into it. But the point is, we did get involved with World War One, and there were direct connections to this group of people. And so in 1914, the Carnegie Foundation then asked the question, quote, how do we prevent a reversal or reversal of life to how people were before the war? We must continue Control the education in the United States and specifically the teaching of American history. End quote. So basically, there was a three pronged method that was agreed upon where the Rockefeller Foundation would handle the educational challenge domestically in the United States, the Carnegie Endowment would then handle the international side of things, and the Guggenheim Foundation was in charge of finding doctoral candidates who would adhere to the curriculum of, quote, the American Historical Association, which was another group associated with them. And this followed the Prussian PhD education system, bringing the Prussian model to America and making sure that that got spread throughout the new education system that they were developing and forming. Now, the purpose of this new education system was summarized as, quote, the future of this country belongs to collectivism administered with characteristic American efficiency. So there was an investigation into all of this stuff, and that's where a lot of these quotes come from, was from that investigation. That's where a lot of this came out. And this was done in 1952 to 1954. It was called the United States House Select Committee to Investigate tax-exempt foundations and comparable organizations. And so under that title, a man by the name of Norman Dodd began the investigation and headed up the investigation into these organizations. Now, in 1954, Mr. Gaither of the Ford Foundation asked for a meeting and told Mr. Dodd, quote, would you be interested in knowing what we do here at the Ford Foundation? And of course, Mr. Dodd said, Yes, that's exactly why I'm here. I would be very interested, sir. Then without any prodding at all, Gaither said, Mr. Dodd, we operate in response to directives, the substance of which is that we shall use our grant-making power to alter life in the United States so that it can be comfortably merged with the Soviet Union. End quote. So basically, it is said that Dodd was very surprised when he heard this, and he said back to Gaither, quote, Well, sir, you can do anything you please with your grant-making powers, but don't you think you have an obligation to make a disclosure to the American people? You enjoy tax exemption, which is an indirect way of saying that you are subsidized by the taxpayer. So why don't you tell Congress and the American people what you just told me? And Gaither replied, quote, we would never dream of doing such a thing, end quote. So when Mr. Dodd wrapped up his investigation, he did submit a report. And a lot of what I'm going into next comes from that specific report. So in the Dodd report to the Reese Committee of Foundations, there was a definition of a word that was fairly important to start things off. And that word was subversive because they were saying that these foundations were subversive. And so they define the term as, quote, any action having as its purpose the alteration of either the principle or the form of the United States government by any other means than constitutional means. 
Dodd went on to argue that the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Endowment were all using funds excessively on projects at Columbia, Harvard, the University of Chicago, and the University of California in order to enable oligarchical collectivism. He stated, quote, The purported deterioration in scholarship and in the techniques of teaching which, lately, has attracted the attention of the American public has apparently been caused primarily by a premature effort to reduce our meager knowledge of social phenomena to the level of an applied science. End quote. He also said that his research staff had discovered that in, quote, 1933 to 1936, a change took place, which was so drastic as to constitute a revolution. They also indicated conclusively that the responsibility for the economic welfare of the American people had been transferred heavily to the executive branch of the federal government, that a corresponding change in education had taken place from an impetus outside of the local community, and that this revolution had occurred without violence and with the full consent of an overwhelming majority of the electorate, end quote. He also said that this revolution, quote, could not have occurred peacefully or with the consent of the majority unless education in the United States had been prepared in advance to endorse it, end quote. So overall, when you read through this report, you see that there really is an oligarchy that was running things behind the scenes that was investigated, that was found out, that was reported on, and of course, nothing really became of it. Nothing really happened. So when you look at the groups involved, there will be many names that are recognizable to you, many that are still in existence to this day. You had the main ones of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. You have the Carnegie Corporation the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and the Guggenheim Foundation. These were kind of the core groups that were part of this investigation. Then there was also some other groups and some other foundations. You had the American Council of Learned Societies, the National Research Council, the Social Science Research Council, the American Council on Education, the National Education Association, the League for Industrial Democracy, the Progressive Education Association, the American Historical Association, the John Dewey Society, and the Anti-Defamation League. These were all groups that were associated and investigated and had something to do with all of these different things that are presented in this report. And all of them do, well, mainly, they at least have ties back to those core foundations from the Rockefellers and Carnegie's. Now, if you get into the report, there's some very interesting stuff there, and I do want to read some more quotes. I'm sorry this episode is fairly quote-heavy, but I wanted to give a specific example that has concrete evidence of an oligarchic system in place in the United States. And we do see a historical example here from this report and this investigation. So it is definitely relevant, and it keeps me from sounding like I am just spouting off a conspiracy theory. I am actually reading a legitimate government investigation here. So I'll read a few quotes, a few paragraphs that really stood out, and you can take from it what you will. I'll just read through these paragraphs and these quotes without stopping and starting and saying begin quote and end quote. It's all just a quote from different sections of the document and the report. So I'll start off here, quote, The broad study which called our attention to the activities of these organizations has revealed not only their support by foundations, 
but has disclosed a degree of cooperation between them, which they have referred to as an interlock, thus indicating a concentration of influence and power. By this phrase, they indicate that they are bound by a common interest rather than a dependency upon a single source for capital funds. It is difficult to study their relationship without confirming this. Likewise, it is difficult to avoid the feeling that their common interest has led them to cooperate closely with one another and that this common interest lies in the planning and control of certain aspects of American life through a combination of the federal government and education. This may explain why the foundations have played such an active role in the promotion of the social sciences, why they have favored so strongly the employment of social scientists by the federal government, and why they seem to have used their influence to transform education into an instrument for social change. From our studies, it appears that the overall administration of this functioning whole and the careful selection of its personnel seem to have been the peculiar interest of the American Council of Learned Societies. It is interesting to note that by legislative action recently, another entity has been brought into being known as the National Science Foundation, whose purpose is to develop a national policy with respect to science. Its additional purpose is to serve our government in an advisory capacity in connection with the huge appropriations now being made for research in the interest of effective controls. Evidence exists of close cooperation between privately endowed foundations, the agencies through which they have operated, and the educational institutions through which they have been accustomed to make grants for research. This process may contribute to an undesirable degree of concentrated power. It is also interesting to note that by comparison with funds for research provided by foundations, those now flowing from our government are so large that they dwarf foundation contributions. This promises to be true for some time and to come to indicate that foundations may extend their influence over a wider area than in the past. The result of the development and operation of the network in which foundations played such a significant role seems to have provided this country with what is tantamount to a national system of education under the tight control of organizations and persons little known to the American public. Its operations and ideas are so complex as to be beyond public understanding or control. It also seems to have resulted in an educational product which can be traced to research of a predominantly empirical character in the inexact social sciences. In these fields, the specialists, more often than not, seem to have been concerned with the production of empirical data and with its application. Principles and their truth, or falsity, seem to have concerned them very little. And what appears from our studies to have been zeal for radically new social order in the United States, many of these social science specialists apparently gave little thought to either the opinions or the warnings of those who were convinced that a wholesale acceptance of knowledge acquired almost in entirely by empirical methods based on or characterized by observation and experiment instead of theory would result in a deterioration of moral standards and principles. Even past experience, which indicated that such an approach to the problems of society could lead to tyranny, appears to have been disregarded. 
For these reasons, it has been difficult for us to dismiss the suspicion that, latent in the minds of many of the social scientists, has lain the belief that, given sufficient authority and enough funds, human behavior can be controlled, and that this control can be exercised without risk to either ethical principles or spiritual values, and that, therefore, the solution to all social problems should be entrusted to them. End quote. So basically, you can tell there that this investigation showed that the foundations basically controlled the educational system in America, that they had certain goals for creating a more collectivist society and steering society through education using certain methods where they would use data and statistics to make sure that their views were the ones that seemed to be based in truth and accuracy even though they weren't very concerned with truth or principles or ethics, and they thought that they should have all the power and that that would be best for society if they had all the power and control and could steer things the way that they saw fit. If they had enough funds to do so and enough authority to do so, then they could do what's best for society. This, basically, by definition, is an oligarchy where you have small groups of elite people that run everything. And so... I would argue that then we were beginning to be under the control of an oligarchy, and it has just gotten worse over time. They do have some common goals and a symbiotic relationship, but these groups are often in competition with each other for spheres of control and continuous growth of wealth and power. So, At least, it's not one monopoly, one corporation that's ruling everything behind the scenes. It's different groups. And it's not just corporations. It's not just foundations. These groups do take many forms. But they all do have some common goals that they are all working for. These are things like controlling information, controlling wealth and who can attain wealth and keep wealth, who can grow their wealth, store their wealth, transfer their wealth, everything related to controlling wealth. They have the goal of increasing reliance of individuals on institutions. Their goals include steering society towards a utopia for one, for some, for all, depending on which group you're talking about. But they have their vision for a collectivist utopia, and they are trying to get us there. Another goal would be to keep society compliant and to shut down competition outside of the oligarchy, basically to silence dissent outside of their group. These are goals that they all have. They are all fairly collectivist goals, but it's more of a collectivism that is ran by an elite group, an elite oligarchy. So you have the oligarchy that is running a collectivist society. They are in complete control of things like education and information, and they have a citizenry that's fairly compliant, that is very reliant on them and who basically knows nothing of their rule and what's really going on. And if that sounds something similar to what we have today, I would agree with you. And so that is partly why I argue that we are either under an oligarchy now or we are mostly oligarchic in our governmental structure. 
So with that cheery coverage of power behind the scenes and what's really going on and that wonderful report from decades ago, hopefully that has set the stage for season two and been a good wrap up for season one. We talked about the overarching concepts in the previous episode. We kind of brought those a little further in this episode and talked about the corruption and the power behind the scenes and this type of stuff. And these things will, number one, wrap up season one and be a good overview, review, a connection between all these things and how they all play together. But number two, it's a good introduction to the next season because these things all are things that we can see historically happen. You have groups like the Medici, like the Borgias, and groups like this that did have a lot of power behind the scenes. There were oligarchies that were in existence under the guise of a monarchy or another governmental institution or a church institution. And we'll see all these different things. We'll see how education and monetary systems and governmental systems are interlocked, how they're interwoven together historically and how those historic examples mirror what we have today. And so these reviews that we've done in the last episode and this episode should be a good introduction into that. Now, the next episode I will do will be an official introduction into season two that will present the overall idea, everything we're going to cover. It'll introduce the season, and then we'll get into the rest of the episodes. I would like to say that I'm pretty excited because the first few episodes of season two after the introduction will be guest episodes, and I am bringing on some very good guests, at least in my opinion, and I think you will definitely agree with me. These will be guests that are hosts of other popular podcasts that specialize in some niche areas that I will be covering in season two. So what I'm going to do is bring them on, and each one will cover a different set of aspects that we'll go over, and you'll get a very good introduction to the parallels I'm drawing, to the different systems, to what the history was like, what the systems and structures were like, what the institutions were like, how they all evolved and how they all interacted with each other and what this was like for an individual living in those times and how that compares to an individual like ourselves living in these times. So we'll get into all that. And in the next episode, as I introduce season two, I will mention who all these people are. I'll go ahead and I guess just mention them off the top of my head that I can think of. We've got the hosts of these podcasts. We've got Wittenberg to Westphalia, we've got the history of the papacy, we've got Freeman Beyond the Wall, there is the Panoptic podcast, and the Crunch, the Catholic podcast, and the Christian Humanist podcast. So I'm bringing on the host or hosts of these podcasts, and we're going to talk about the areas that they specialize in. And so if you've ever heard of these, then you are probably pretty excited like I am. And if you have not heard of these podcasts, then I would highly recommend them because these are the shows that I am going to be recommending for you to listen to if you want to go into more detail about certain aspects and certain topics that will be referenced in season two, but that I am personally not going to go very deep into, such as history. I'm not going to give you an entire history lesson of everything I talk about. I'm just going to pull out specific examples and cover them. So if you want more of a history of the Middle Ages or of the Reformation or of the structure of the historic church or of the theology that they discussed and debated in that time or 
the effects that these had or anything like that, then I would highly recommend Wittenberg Westphalia or the History of the Papacy, for example, or the Christian Humanist podcast. They have some really good episodes on mixing philosophy and theology. So those are the people I'm bringing on, and those are the recommendations that I would have for you. And I will repeat those in the next few episodes so that you are well aware of what they are. And with that, I will wrap up this episode. I would like to say thank you for all of you who are supporting in various ways. Thank you for those who have left ratings and reviews, those who are patrons and supporting the podcast financially. Thank you very much. And thank you for those of you who have given me feedback about the show and about specific episodes and who have made requests for the show and for certain topics. I will mention too that I did change the patreon page and the perks that come with being a patron so now if you are a patron and you pledge a monthly amount then you do get to request a specific question or topic or subject and i will either do an episode on it specifically or i will cover it in an episode so that's another perk if that's something you're interested in if you want something covered but you don't have the money or the desire to be a patron then you can still request it and i might get to it i might not but if you want to guarantee that i get to it you can be a patron if not still feel free to send me that and i will cover it if i can so With that, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for sharing this podcast with others. I hope it has been very helpful, very enlightening, and is a good launching pad for you to further your own personal education in the areas that you have recognized that you are lacking in, just like myself and just like all of us. We all have many areas we are lacking in education, and we should all be working towards remedying that. So hopefully this has given you some motivation to do so and some direction into what areas you might be more interested in or more lacking in. And I hope that you do pursue that. So thank you very much again. Please come back next time as we get into season two. With that, I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.